Welcome to Taiwan Report News Brief, news analysis and context from Taichung, Taiwan. I'm Donovan Smith. All right, this is part two of the series on U.S.-Taiwan relations, and it's based on a speech I gave at Donghai University the other day. So the first part covered the basics up to the Reagan administration, which involved, of course, getting the ROC delegation to storm out of the UN, meaning that Taiwan was no longer represented there. And of course, the US cutting diplomatic relations, the Taiwan Relations Act, and setting up AIT, the American Institute on Taiwan here, to act as a de facto embassy. Now, Ronald Reagan came into office right after Jimmy Carter had done this, and he initially opposed it. However, once he came into office, he went along with Carter's decision. However, he added something to the Taiwan Relations Act and gave Taiwan what's called the Six Assurances. Now, at the time, these were not widely publicized, but what's important about it is that it was from the U.S. government giving assurances to the government here in Taiwan. Now, these six assurances that Reagan gave, and he signed personally, it's been slightly modified since, but this is the current version. We did not agree to set a date certain for ending arms sales to Taiwan. We see no mediation role for the United States between Taiwan and the People's Republic of China nor will we attempt to exert pressure on Taiwan to enter into negotiations with the PRC. There has been no change in our long-standing position on the issue of sovereignty over Taiwan, which, by the way, is undetermined, which I talked about in Part 1. And we have no plans to seek revisions to the Taiwan Relations Act and the August 17th communique should not be read to imply that we have agreed to engage in prior consultations with Beijing on arms sales to Taiwan. Now, that last part there has been more or less honored. However, I'll be coming back to that in a second. Now, during the Reagan through Obama years, the U.S. government has been keeping a moderately cool policy toward Taiwan in deference to the government in Beijing. Now, it's not warm, it's not exactly cold either. It was, as I noted in the first part, the U.S. State Department put in all kinds of self-imposed rules on how Taiwan and government officials could interact, where they could meet, what people could wear even. It was kind of silly, frankly. There was an awful lot of that. Now, different administrations would sell more or less weapons to Taiwan, depending on how cool or warm they were to Taiwan and to the People's Republic. So some administrations would sell more weapons and others less, depending on how worried they were at hurting the feelings of the Chinese people and offending the government in Beijing. Now, the reason why I noted the last part of the six assurances is that it's true the U.S. government, as far as we know, has not consulted with Beijing on weapons sales to Taiwan. But how modern the weapons were, how many weapons were sold, how frequently they were sold, were made internally within the United States with the reaction of the People's Republic in mind. 
So while in practice they weren't consulting with China, they were effectively deferring to Beijing on the decisions that they made. Now, during this period, there are various communiques made with China that refer to Taiwan. I'm, I'm not going to go into those because recent developments have kind of shoved those under the rug. So the U.S. has been generally bowing to China's wishes or even making up things that they were bowing to China on, but up to a point. Let me talk a little bit about Democrats versus Republicans and how they view Taiwan. The Republicans traditionally have been much more pro-Taiwan. They have historically been more pro-right-wing governments, whether they were authoritarian or not. The Democrats, historically, have been less friendly to Taiwan and less likely to crack down on left-wing authoritarian governments. That's historically been the pattern. Now, I'll be coming back to this in the modern era and see what's changed. But that's the traditional picture. As for the KMT, the Kuomintang, versus the DPP, the Democratic Progressive Party, during the Chen years, the Chen Shui-bian presidency, the U.S. government kept trying to rein in Chen Shui-bian and, of course, the vice president, Annette Liu, Liu Xiaolian, over things that they would say. And the U.S. government made it very clear to Chen that they were very concerned about Chen, as they put it or thought, rocking the boat. They blamed Chen Shui-bian for all the tensions that were created during that period between Taiwan and China, even though that was not entirely accurate. However, the U.S. government did not want war, they did not want any trouble, and they found it easier to lean on Chen Shui-bian than to lean on the government in Beijing. In 2012, it appears that the U.S. government was concerned that Tsai Ing-wen might win the presidency. And in a move that was widely considered an attempt by the U.S. government to signal to Taiwan voters, an ex-official from state, or I believe it was one or two, came out and made some comments that made Tsai Ing-wen sound unreliable or hinted that they didn't trust her. During this period, it seems that the U.S. government was more pro-KMT than they were pro-DPP. There's some historical reasons for this. Of course, the KMT and the U.S. government had been working together for a couple of generations, so they knew each other well, whereas the DPP, they didn't really know what they were thinking or seemed to understand what their point was. A student, after I gave the speech, asked an interesting question. She said, if Chen and Tsai were much clearer on the threat of China and took a stronger line on China, why didn't the U.S. at the time support them over the KMT? Well, the reason is that during those period, the U.S. government was more deferential to China than to Taiwan. The U.S. did not want to rock the boat. So the U.S. government found what Chen Shui-bian or they feared what the DPP was doing was considered rocking the boat and causing trouble. We'll move into the Trump years here. Trump was elected in 2016. When he was president-elect, he took a phone call from President Tsai. This was mistakenly released. Now, this was not widely known at the time. But what happened was apparently that his staff, who was supposed to keep this a secret, but they were inexperienced and accidentally released the presence of the call to the press. Of course, everyone in Taiwan is extremely happy about this. And what Trump himself 
thought about its being made public or not. Originally, we really don't know, but the staff was instructed to not make that call public. Trump took a stronger line on China and took quite a few actions toward China, which were very popular here in Taiwan. But he didn't really seem to care much about Taiwan. He very famously, as John Bolton referred to it, he referred to a tip of a pen compared to a desk and essentially saying that Taiwan was small and insignificant compared to China. So we really don't know what he thinks about Taiwan or thought about Taiwan, but he did hint at defending Taiwan if China were to attack. During one interview, he he very famously kind of growled, they know what I'll do, which hinted at a defense of Taiwan. Now, he didn't exactly say that, but that's how a lot of people, including people who are not very pro-Trump, interpreted that statement. As little as Trump seemed particularly interested in Taiwan, many of his team were very pro-Taiwan. Obviously, people like John Bolton. And during this period, arms sales started to increase significantly to Taiwan, and the quality of the arms started to increase. Congress started to get a move on and passing more pro-Taiwan legislation. However, the U.S. Trade Representative snubbed President Tsai. President Tsai risked a lot of political capital by lifting the ban on U.S. pork imports that contained ractopamine. And the Trump U.S. Trade Representative basically just ignored this move on the Taiwan side in spite of words coming out of the National Security Agency and the State Department strongly encouraging beginning talks on a free trade agreement. During the Secretary of State Mike Pompeo era, he was the last Secretary of State under the Trump administration. During the Pompeo period, now this is something I heard via back channels. I can't prove that it's accurate, but this is what I heard from people in the know. That essentially Pompeo said to Trump, let me do what I want to do and I'll be loyal to you. And apparently Trump went along with it, unlike his predecessors. That jibes with Mike Pompeo's actions in public. Again, I have no proof of that, but that seems to be what happened. So Mike Pompeo released some old documents, including the six assurances signed by Reagan, and emphasized them as key. This is important because during the Clinton era, the Obama era, the two Bush eras, there was a lot more emphasis on the agreements that Taiwan had made with China. And they would talk about one China policy, they would talk about the Taiwan Relations Act, and then they would often refer to some of the agreements that they'd made with China that mentioned Taiwan. Under Mike Pompeo, he'd refer to the one China policy the six assurances, which were directly given to Taiwan. In other words, he's emphasizing the agreement with Taiwan over the agreements with China, as well as the Taiwan Relations Act. He also publicly stated that Taiwan has never been a part of China. Presumably, he was referring to the People's Republic of China, although there could be a case for that going longer term. Now, he also revived the Quad, which is an agreement between the U.S., Japan, Australia, and India that sees them cooperating with each other, kind of obviously together against China. So he revived this, which originally came in after the tsunami for humanitarian aid. 
Also, the government released national security documents showing U.S. planning for war over Taiwan if China were to attack. So this is the first time this had been made open and obvious. And it suggested that the traditional policy of strategic ambiguity, which I went into in part one, where the United States will not say one way or the other whether it will come to defend Taiwan militarily or not in case of a Chinese invasion. Releasing this kind of thing made the strategic ambiguity barely ambiguous, but it didn't quite abandon it. They didn't say that they were going to do this. They just made it clear that they were planning for it. Plus, the U.S. sent the highest level delegation since 1979 during this period. And just before Trump left office, Pompeo dropped all of those silly State Department rules on contact with Taiwanese. All right, that's it for part two. And we'll talk about the run up to the election and the first hundred days of the Biden administration. This has been brought to you by the Taiwan Report. For more content like this, become our patron at report.tw. Hey, I'm the Taiwan girl. I'm the Taiwan girl.